This is Looking Forward, conversations about the future of work, brought to you by Herman Miller. Hey, listeners. This week, we close season one of the Looking Forward podcast by talking about what it will take to create belonging within our workplaces. As we consider post-pandemic work, there is, in my opinion, no greater goal than for organizations to help create belonging and to foster healthy communities. And I don't think there's anyone better for us to discuss the topic with than our guest this week, John A. Powell. John leads the Othering and Belonging Institute at University of California, Berkeley, and has truly a wonderful gift of helping everyone to get excited about the topic of creating belonging, which, by the way, isn't only the right thing to do, it's a good business strategy. So enjoy this season-ending episode with John, and I'm looking forward to talking with you again in season two. John, thank you so much for joining the Looking Forward podcast. That's a delight to be here. Thank you, Ryan. Well, I've been excited to be able to spend some time with you for a while, uh, and I want to make sure that our listeners know a little bit about you and what you do, so maybe you can kick things off that way. Well, I, I teach at UC Berkeley. I teach a lot of African-American studies and ethnic studies, and mainly I run a large institute called the Othering and Belonging Institute. And I know, uh, Ryan, you're in Grand Rapids, and I'm from Detroit. My family is still in the Detroit area, and I'll be uh, there over Thanksgiving. Um, so um, Michigan still feels like home, even though I haven't lived there for many years now. That's great. Well, it'll be good to have you back, even though I'm far on the west side and Detroit is on the east side. And sometimes I laugh not to get into this too much that sometimes these different parts of the states feel very disparate. But ideally, we're, we think of ourselves as unified, at least if you happen to be a Lions fan. <laughs> So um, the Othering and Belonging Institute at Berkeley, tell us about it. Um, I know the work you do there is very multifaceted, but unpack for us a little bit about what you might be working on in the course of a day or a week there. Yeah, it is a large institute. We have, it's faculty affiliated. We have about 130 faculty organized across seven clusters, uh, looking at different ways in which groups are marginalized and different groups. And the, the idea is really to sort of not just study it, but to actually make some interventions and change. Uh, so we look at race, we look at uh, income, we look at uh, LGBTQ, we look at disability, we look at religion, uh, we look at age, and then we say, and everything else. And in addition to the faculty affiliates, we have about 60 to 70 staff, uh, including some staff in Europe. Uh, we're increasing our global footprint. And uh, we look at infrastructure, we look at interpersonal relationship, and it's multifaceted. So it's across the campus. So we pull people from economics. In fact, one of our cluster members just received a Nobel Prize. Um, we have engineers. We have lawyers. We have uh, health providers, uh, anthropologists. And that is to sort of bring all this body of work together and try to really figure out how to make a world, we say, where everyone belongs and no one is other. Uh, belonging is universal, but oftentimes people do it in such a way that they constitute their own group as belonging, but then say the next group does not belong. So we say we want a world where everyone belongs. And the way people are other vary across different dimensions and different times. So obviously in the United States, race is a big one, but so is um, uh, disability, so is um, sexual orientation. And it changes over time. And you leave the United States and it might be religion, or it might be immigration, or it might be go to Rwanda, but the genocide that happened there is partially how many cows you had. 
Um, so we're very ingenious as human beings to figure out ways of saying someone doesn't belong. And what we're experiencing in the world today is deep polarization, deep othering that's been weaponized by the elites. And it's actually tearing our country and our world apart. Yeah, I know that when you started uh, the Institute or when the Institute started, it didn't, it wasn't called othering and belonging. And it feels to me like that those choice of words are quite intentional. And you're already helping us to understand a little bit of that nuance here. But specifically on the topic of othering, what does it mean to other someone or to think of them as other than you? Yeah, I mean, basically, it's not to court them full human dignity and equality and to insist that they don't belong, to insist that they're not a part of the body politics, the cultural fabric, and at its extreme, uh, to even deny their humanity. And so we use, as I said, all kinds of mechanisms to deny that. And it's multifaceted because we're, we're multifaceted beings. And um, so we can either, we can even at times other parts of ourselves, deny um, parts of ourselves. When you think about someone, whether you know, being ashamed of who they are, whether it's there, whatever. Othering can happen at an individual level. I go into a store and someone refuses to acknowledge me or follows me. Um, but we also look at institutional othering. So when we think of things like Jim Crow or segregation or um, our early immigration policies that actually limited immigration to free white men. It's basically saying the only people who can come or obviously what happened uh, in Germany, it was saying Jews are not part of the body, body politic. Um, and bad thing happens to societies when people get deeply grounded in othering, uh, not just a target group, but I think to the whole society. Well, I'm curious, given your um, your focus on this and your dedication to this, it feels like othering has become so much more pronounced in recent years. Is that something that motivates you? Do you find it demotivating and discouraging seeing that while you and so many others have been dedicated to creating belonging, it seems like we're struggling this perhaps more than we have in a really long time? That's exactly right. Oh, that's interesting. The world is complicated and multifaceted. So just get an example. The research suggests that we're more polarized as a country uh, than since the Civil War. And that's actually happening not just in the United States, but globally. Uh, we have um, in India, people saying to Muslims who've lived there for you know, hundreds of years, you don't belong, essentially, you can't buy housing. Uh, and then we go over to Pakistan and, and the Muslims are saying to the Christian, uh, to the Hindus, you don't belong. Uh, and so it is a worldwide problem. Uh, on the other hand, not to get too discouraged, we just saw the largest body of people in the history of the world stand up for racial justice after the killing of George Floyd. So we're actually seeing two different tracks. Uh, we're in a, a in-between stage. It's not clear where we'll settle. So we have a large number of people who are trying to create a smaller and smaller we with everybody else being other. And there are other people who are trying to create a larger and larger we. Uh, and it's not just people. It's politics. It's the elites. It's the way we organize our our neighborhoods, our churches, our synagogues, our mosques, um, the way we think about immigration. So, and part of this being driven by the changes that are happening in the world. Uh, I think the speed of changes is causing people to feel anxious about the sense of belonging. And everybody wants to belong. And sometimes we think my belonging is predicated on you're not being here. 
or if you're here, you're less than me. Uh, and, and we advocate, no, that uh, your belonging is an African saying, I am because you are, that we're interconnected. Um, the, the pandemic showed us how profoundly connected we were. You know, ground all the planes, close the doors, build walls, and the virus just keeps spreading. You know, so uh, I think the challenges of the world demand that we get our act together uh, as all people belonging. And so there's positive and negative news. Um, but I think this is like one of the most important things we could do in our life today. Mm -hmm. I agree. Knowing that this podcast has a large focus on future of work and workplace, I, I sense that organizations realize perhaps now far more than maybe they did a few years ago, that their employees, their workforce are communities that are either functioning in healthy ways or not healthy ways. For those uh, listening that might be thinking a little bit about their team or their organization as a community, what should we know about how to create belonging? I know that's a big question, but like, what are the fundamentals? Well, you know, it's interesting. There's been a fair amount of work done on belonging in corporation, belonging at work, uh, some really good surveys. Um, um, and what they find, especially for mid-level uh, folks, is that whether someone will stay at a place after a certain point is not simply how much money they get or how much vacation. It's whether they have a sense that they belong. And if they have a sense they belong, not only will they stay, but their contribution to the organization actually increases. Um, and uh, uh, Howard Ross has written a book about this, about uh, belonging in the workplace. And so there are a lot of stuff out there to suggest that, not surprisingly, that people perform better when they feel like they belong. What that means, one, is that people are respected. You invite their voice into the process. Uh, we say belonging is predicated on co-creation. So a person doesn't just show up as uh, an employee, uh, but it's like they show up as someone who, of, of value. And um, more and more, I think companies are coming to the understanding that um, this is how to run a company. And people, especially in the tech industry, but not limited to that, uh, want to be treated with dignity. And to your point, work is probably the second most important site we spend time in, only second to the home for adults and only second to, to school for children. Um, and as you said, it's not just where you go and make money or make wedges, it's where you have community. It's the people you spend a good deal of your time with and you wanna have the right relationships because you're gonna, you know, they're part of your life. I'm uh, fascinated by this concept of co-creation and belonging. And I think I may have actually heard you phrase it in the past. Correct me if I'm wrong, that belonging is co-created. It's something that you can't simply institutionalize or create a policy around it. So does that mean that on some level, everyone has to at least be cognizant or with positive intent to create belonging? How does it actually work itself out in the midst of say, a team or a, an organization? Well, I think that uh, an organization can create the template, can actually uh, articulate those values and can create space and even incentivize it. But it's a culture as well, and it's aspirational. So some people will say we'll, we'll never achieve it. Uh, but that hasn't stopped us before. I mean, when people talk about um, uh, love and, and the, uh, the agape sense, the Greek sense that we we are uh, in the, the Christian sense or the, the uh, Hindu sense. I mean, the idea is that, okay, people 
we'll be petty, we'll be egotistical, but we could aspire for something greater. And sometimes we will achieve that. Um, and so we tell stories and we, we um, look for opportunities and try to limit the risk of uh, belonging and enhance the benefit. Um, so, and belonging is not just my belonging or your belonging, it's creating a space where we all belong. So how do I tend to you as well? How do I listen to you? How do I see you? Um, and when I really see you and hear you, uh, it has not only a positive impact on you, but it also has a positive impact on me. And in this case, a positive impact on the workplace. Uh, there's a book called Behave and uh, written by Robert Sapolsky. And he says that many wars are fought over sacred symbols. And in part, what he's saying is that when people feel disregarded, when people feel invisibilized, when people feel uh, um, that they're the wretched of the earth. Uh, it's not simply stuff. It's people want to live life with dignity. And we all do. And, um, and I can't just create that dignity for myself. I need something from you. I need you to recognize me as human. And it's an interesting thing, right, that there's a part of the brain that lights up when we send out the human being. Uh, and when we deeply other people, that part of the brain does not light up. So there literally is a process that we see some people as less than human. And that does something not only to them, but also does something negative to us. I'm curious if you've, uh, g given how long and how deeply you've focused on this, if you are able to enter into an organization, whether it's an office or a gathering, and have a sense of the degree of othering and belonging, or is it something that really can't be read at a surface level? Do you have to dig deeper to try to understand or ascertain the true state of of reality for an organization? Well, I think you do both. I mean, I think we all know. I mean, you know, we go to a party and, was, and then within five minutes, it's like, this is not my place. Right. Um, you know, it could be, a, I'm, I didn't get the memo. I'm not dressed accordingly. Um, so I think it's actually very quick that the, we're, our survival, Maslow talks about this, our survival depends upon us belonging. So we need to know, we're, we're in a sense wired to know whether or not this is a friendly group or a hostile group. Now, sometimes I may misread it, but I'm heavily cued toward is this friendly or is this hostile? Um, so I think we do it very fast, not always accurately, but then also we need to do it very much more systematic. And so the context that people are, some of your listeners are employers, they can they should do belonging surveys. They should, and again, some of those have already been done uh, and how to do them is, is a growing industry, uh, but you need to get beneath just the surface. Uh, so you really, you really come in at multiple levels. Um, and... Um, People like appropriately empirical stuff that's sort of based in some kind of science. Uh, so it's useful to know how people feel and who they are, because oftentimes there's surprises. Uh, you may think that, so for example, um, there's been recent studies suggest that probably one of the groups that feel least like they belong to the country, uh, and we have multiple sites where we belong or don't belong, are white men. And that's surprising. When we think about the polarization, what's going on, it's less surprising. Um, but uh, then the question is, what do you do about it? When you have people who uh, feel that they don't belong, and they feel that not just individually, but as a group, they're likely to engage in either self-destructive or other destructive behavior. 
So what do we do to actually change that? Well, I know one of, probably not the only, but one of the concepts that the Othering and Belonging Institute has discussed and that you've discussed is this idea of targeted universalism. I find it fascinating, although I consider myself a novice. Can you give us a little sense of what targeted universalism is and how it might be employed? Sure. So this is it's actually interesting. Targeted universalism sometimes is referred to as equity 2.0. It differs from equity 1.0 in a couple of interesting ways. Equity 1.0 oftentimes focuses on disparity between groups. So group A has this and group B does not have this. And group C doesn't have anything at all. And so equity 1.0 says, let's close those disparities between group A and group B. Disparities are important. We care about ourselves, not just in the absolute sense, but relative sense. So that makes sense. Except that sometimes group A doesn't feel like it has what it deserves. And the, the way we approach equity 1.0 is to suggest that maybe group A has too much and maybe we have to take from them to give to group B. <clears throat> well, it won't surprise you. That goes over like a lead balloon, group A. It actually creates what we call breaking. It creates greater tension and polarization. Uh, what about group C? Well, we're not talking about group C. We're, we're concerned with group B. So it also disappears some groups. Uh, and so the way equity is practiced unintentionally oftentimes create greater dissension between groups. And then you get fighting less than who's more deserving. Is it group A, group B, group C? And what we say in target universalism is all of them are deserving. And that we don't set our goal based on what group A has. We set it independently of any group. We set universal goals. How do you set those universal goals? Well, you set them through co-creating. You don't just set them by fiat. You say, we get to decide what the universal goals are. Uh, and then you look at how groups are situated within structures and cultures and in relation to, to that universal goal. So you say, why are you, why are you helping out you know, women so much? And what about men? You say, we're, those of us who have kids, and I have kids, it's like, why are you focusing on that kid? Because that kid has strep throat. The other kid does not. It's not that I love one kid more than the other. It's that they're situated differently. Um, someone is in a wheelchair, and they come to an escalator. And you say, wait, they can't use the escalator? No, they need an elevator. It's not because there's anything special about them. This, the structure doesn't fit them. And so targeting universalism says, let's look at how we're situated within structures, within culture, and within relationships that universal, and then come up with targeted strategies to get us that universal. Now, when we say get us, who are we talking about? All of us. All of us. Not just the group that's most marginal. Not the group that's just best off. We're saying every group deserves an opportunity to get to that universal, but what they need to do that will be different. Well, what you're saying reminds me a little bit of probably what is essentially uh, an application of that in the world of um, either spatial design or product design known as universal design, which is specifically more focused around um, 
using uh, the standard of what a product or a space might need to do to support someone with a unique unique need could be physical, cognitive, sensory, but in fact, the design ends up being better for everyone. Um, and if you simply set that standard for what that design really should do, and maybe you use special needs that one person or another may have as a higher level of standard for all, it tends to produce something better. So it, it's hearkening to that a little bit for me. And I love the idea of equity 2.0. I also, t- I'm feeling like this is a really great way of entering into a conversation with people that may or may not positively react to conversations around inclusiveness and equity, particularly in the corporate setting. And I do want to ask you about this a little bit. I think there are those of us that get excited uh, about that topic, maybe for others less so. It's feeling to me like the language here on othering and belonging and targeting universalism is a really great way of opening this up while not necessarily conjuring up what may be existing baggage or connotations around traditional language. Is that fair or am I off on that one? You're spot on, you're spot on. Because oftentimes when, if you're trying to redistribute resources, you oftentimes need to redistribute blame and and you have to justify it. Um, And so no one wants to be blamed, uh, even when they should be. You know, all of us, none of us are completely blameless and none of us are just, just blameworthy. And, and sometimes the blame is by proxy, right? It's like, well, those people who you're associated with did something a long time ago, maybe. Uh, but the thing is, how does that, what does that say about me now? Uh, am I deserving because I'm a man uh, in a world where women were mistreated? I'm still deserving. And, and, and to get women into a place where they get the universal may mean they need something different and something more. But I'm still deserving. That doesn't make me into a bad person. The same in terms of whites. You say, oh, what about you know slavery? You say, well, I wasn't here then. So we're talking about the aspirations for the country and for the companies. Uh, and it doesn't matter. Uh, in a sense, it's more forward-looking. Mm-hmm. And it's saying, we're moving forward with everyone. Everyone counts. Everyone counts. Uh, and... Um, oftentimes we, we spend too much time just saying that group does not count because they're bad. No group wants to be, in terms of dignity, in terms of respect, no group wants to be put into the, the role of you're just bad. Um, and so uh, it really is quite different because it, it's not picking winners and losers. Um, and so, for example, one of the popular concepts now is that uh, in the social justice space, we have allies. And I say, not so quick, not so fast, that maybe in some limited situation, that may be appropriate. But basically, we all have a stake in the game. We all invested. So I want you to be involved, not because you're there primarily to help me, but because you you care about the country, you care about the planet, you care about society, uh, you care about the kind of world your children are going to grow up in, period. Uh, and that's whether you're white, black, Asian, Latino, Native American. Uh, so, okay, so then you have a stake in the game. Now, again, it might be that some groups or some people have a louder voice. Uh, it doesn't mean you say, from my perspective, shut up. It means make space for other voices. But we still want your voice in the conversation. Um, and so that's co-creating. That's not mm-hmm. you're an ally. Uh, you're an ally suggests that 
you sort of maybe disinterested or you're only interested because you like me, uh, but you don't have skin in the game yourself. Can I ask you about a, a more specific topic? Herman Miller is a founding partner in an initiative called Future Forum, along with Slack and Boston Consulting Group and others. We do a 10,000-person index every quarter, get a little sense of how people are feeling about work, et cetera. And one of the things we've been talking about is that there's great benefits for more flexibility across almost all employees and something like 76% of employees are asking for more flexibility with where they could work, but 93% want more flexibility with when they could work. But we started to look at the data a little bit and it was interesting to see some groups explaining their need for flexibility, I think in more specific ways and maybe more pronounced ways. One was working parents and I don't think that surprised many of us, but the other was people of color and in particular African-American knowledge workers. And it referenced a few things that I think a lot of us want to understand better. One was with additional flexibility to either work from home or from the office or at different times, perhaps less of a need to engage in code switching uh, throughout the course of a work day and work week. The other was fewer microaggressions perhaps in the office. And um, actually the analytics blog 538 picked up on this data, wrote a really brilliant piece that I remember reading a couple different times um, and where it left me personally was with a couple things. One was understanding, I think, in new ways, the greater value of flexibility, but also with a deep desire to want those experiences in the office when people are there to not be so challenging. Can you help us unpack a little bit about what you might take um, from that or if you've got any additional thoughts on how we can begin to make life in the office as well as outside of the office? a place of, of greater belonging in these situations? That's a great question. And um, it's a little, little bit complicated. Uh, let's say a couple of things. So if people um, if people have to engage in code switching or constantly dealing with microaggression, there's work by a friend of mine named Claude Steele who writes about this. He talks about stereotype threats. He talks about the threat that a, a, a minoritized group feels under certain situation and how it actually is exhausting. Uh, we can measure it. Uh, and it actually has sometimes a, a negative impact on their work because their their consciousness is split. You know, you're constantly interpreting. Uh, again, you don't belong. And so you spend a lot of time sort of managing your environment to be relatively safe. Um, and so it's not surprising that if someone says, okay, do, do you want to come in today and deal with that? Or do you want to stay home? So stay home, you know? A corollary to that is uh, homeschooling. They're finding the fastest growing group in terms of homeschooling in the United States right now are African-Americans. And it's much the same reason that the parents feel like, you know, I'm trying to get my kid to have a good education to be safe, but I'm hearing all these stories. I'm just going to keep them at home. I'm not an educator and maybe I have a job and I have to work inside the home, but my kid is a priority. And so more and more African-Americans are saying, I'll just keep the kid at home. You know, it's the same kind of thing that you're seeing in the workplace. That's completely understandable, uh, and I empathize with it. I don't think it's a long-term solution, because think of what we're saying. We're saying, uh, and, and, and Max Weber wrote about this years ago. He talked about retreating to a private place, and he said, you know, basically, if you leave the public place toxic and you retreat to a private place, you keep retreating further and further and further and further, and the public space is allowed to continue to be more and more and more toxic. Uh, in the long run, that's not healthy for the African-Americans. It's not healthy for society. In the short run, yeah, you might say, you know, I have a granddaughter and I, with my daughter, 
helped her move schools because I felt like one of the schools was not treating her well. Of course, she left. Most kids did not. The situation is still there. So to your point, Ryan, it's like, here's the problem. The problem is the public space. I mean, in this case, work is a public space that's toxic. Let's take Blacks out of this public space, but leave the space toxic. Uh, now, that's problematic on a lot of levels. Plus, there's still research suggesting that some benefit to working with your coworker is still riches in person. Uh, there's also some research suggesting that, and this is too early to say, but promotion and advancement is more likely to happen if you're physically present. Uh, so you're not just creating a safe space and doing your work because work is more than just sort of technical part of your job. It's also about relationships. It's also about having um, uh, ideas and ideas are not just private things. They happen in relationship with others. Um, so I think as a stopgap measure, uh, it may be fine, but as a long-term measure, I worry about it. I mean, we're leaving the problem there and just saying, okay, uh, if you're, this is a hostile environment, even if it's micro hostile, uh, you don't have to come, but the environment is going to stay hostile. Well, let's use that then as we get a little closer to a close here and assume that there may be a listener, or let's hypothetically say it's somebody that you might know who leads a team uh, that, that may be working in the office or working from home, or maybe it's CEO of an organization and she or he is thinking, Post-pandemic, I really want to make sure that our community is healthy and that we decrease othering, increase belonging. What kind of practical steps might you suggest? You mentioned belonging surveys. Are there there tips uh, and suggestions or resources from the Institute that you would direct our listeners to? Yes, we actually have a project right now called uh, CEOs for Equity and Belonging. We work with some very large CEOs, um, uh, literally some of the largest companies in the world, uh, and I think the work has to be affirmative. Um, and again, it's more calling people in, not calling people out, just like anything else, just like, um, uh, and the data, we look at the data, the data tells us sometimes what structural problems are. So there are some companies, we here in the Bay Area, so we're like a lot of tech companies. Um, Snapchat is having an event tomorrow. I guess it won't be tomorrow by the time this is done. So Snapchat held an event where they had 5,000 people, mainly from the tech sector, and they've gotten um, uh, dozens of tech companies to sign up to affirmatively engage this. So the example I like to use is that if you're in a river that's where there's flow, uh, the river is flowing in one direction, to go against the flow is exhausting, right? Uh, it just takes a lot of work and you get a little, look like bang for the buck. You know, just working, 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 you despair. So, but if you relax, you flow where the river is going. That these issues, especially now in terms of polarization, in terms of fragmentation, and in terms of these sort of individualistic efforts to deal with collective problems, that's the norm in our country right now. Uh, short term, it makes sense. Long term, it does not. How do we change that? It's going to take some groups, some peoples with resources, with clarity, with relationship to affirmatively swim upstream. And initially, it's going to be awkward. People are going to make mistakes. Um, people don't know how to do it. Uh, uh, but one of the things about work is that creativity. We invent new stuff. 
you know, there's a problem. My father used to say, problems are opportunities not realized. It's just it's waiting to happen. It's waiting to happen. Um, and so I would encourage your listeners to reach out to us, look at our stuff online. Um, there's um, uh, ServiceNow, some, some credible surveys, and um, uh, there's, there's a lot out there. I mentioned Howard's book, um, book which I think is called Tor Pelongi. Um, uh, I know some of the companies, I, I hesitate to name the companies because I know, you know, some things are public and some are not, but uh, you know, I'll just say some of the largest companies in the world uh, are starting to lean into the space very deliberately. Um, I would say, don't work by yourself. Work with others, collaborate, um, so, so we can learn. Uh, there's cities now that are becoming belonging cities, um, and they're very conscious of what does that mean in practice? How do we measure it? How do we do it? Um, so there's a lot of options out there, a lot of opportunities. Not enough, uh, but we're starting to move in the right direction. Well, I can't imagine a better way to wrap season one of a podcast called Looking Forward than with uh, a vision like you just expressed, with that river flowing the right way. <laughs> And hopefully all of us heading towards a much better uh, future with less othering and much more belonging and hopefully a much greater sense of community and experience at work and beyond. So, John, thank you for what you do. And thanks for spending time with us. No, no, thanks for having me. Thank you for what you do as well.